Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today I'm joined by Ty Beal. Now, Ty got his PhD from UC Davis in geography with an emphasis on global nutri- nutrition. And he's a research advisor at GAIN, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, where his focus is on sustainable food systems, dietary quality, and nutrient adequacy. And he's pretty active on Twitter at Ty R. Beal, T-Y-R-B-E-A-L. Now, one of the things I really like about Ty is is his focus is on nutrition adequacy, dietary adequacy, because we hear so much about plants are good, animals are bad, or animals are good, or plants are bad, or whatever the case may be, right? These polarizing messages, whereas Ty says, well, what does the evidence say about the nutrient adequacy? And he doesn't just focus on the, the, the here, the U.S., where he's based, or the industrialized countries, but he's also focused on a global, uh, global initiative to make sure that nutrient adequacy is the same for everybody, or at least improving for everybody. Because what might be a recommended diet in one place may not be nearly as good or even feasible in in a completely different world. And that's, I think, a problem that we have. Look, I mean, there's no secret that there's a big push for plant-based or plant-exclusive diets uh, here in the U.S. and in industrialized worlds. And I think that's very problematic, not just here, but imagine what the message would be in areas where they don't have uh, access to whole foods the same way that we do. And even if when we have access, there's still going to be a significant risk of nutrient inadequacy. So that that's a big part of, of Ty's message that I really appreciate. Um, so I hope you enjoy his this, this conversation and his take on what it really means to have a, a nutrient adequate diet and what the messages we're hearing, how that may or may not um, help with that. So enjoy this interview with Ty Beal. Ty Beal, thanks so much for joining me today in the Diet Doctor podcast. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite, Brett. Yeah, you know, I first came across you when there was all this discussion on Twitter about about the Food Compass, which I definitely want to want to get to. But I was so interested as I as I learned more about you and your work and your focus on sort of nutrient deficiencies. And I think it's important to sort of clear up. Um, this concept of nutrient deficiencies, because there's sort of a, an easy stereotype to say, oh, that's you know emerging countries, third world countries, low income countries, but it doesn't really apply to westernized and industrialized countries. And through your work, I learned that that's definitely not the case. So I'd like you to take a moment to just sort of clear up what what nutrient deficiency means and how it's similar or different between different countries. Yeah, I think that's an important question. You know. When most people think of inadequacies in the diet or undernutrition um, or nutrient deficiencies, they think of um, primarily low and middle income countries, you know, in Africa and South Asia. But what we um, have found from recent work um, assessing the um, adequacy of diets as well as the uh, prevalence of deficiency uh, is that it's actually very common also in high income contexts. Now, it's not as um, prevalent, it's not as severe, but it certainly contributes to Uh, you know, ill health. And so, you know, as an example, in in the U.S., you know, deficiency is actually relatively common um, among women and children where we have data. So an example of this is in women 15 to 49 years. Um, In the U.S., it's about 22% who are deficient. And even in the U.K., it's about 21%. Um, Zinc deficiency is about 14% in the U.S. um, among women, about 10% in the U.K., uh, also in the UK, you see other deficiencies like folate and vitamin D, close to 20%. So something that we think, um, you know, this isn't really an issue in, in high-income countries. You don't have to worry about it. Um, 
especially for certain groups like young children and women, uh, pregnant lactating women, you really do need to pay attention. Yeah, I mean, 20%, that's one in five women are going to have, in that age group, have a nutrient deficiencies, which is kind of shocking. Now, um, with the dietary structure so different, the access to food so different, um, what, do, what do you think the main difference is for the reasons for nutrient deficiency in industrialized countries like the US and the UK versus Africa and Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think that's important to um, understand. And really, the difference in the, the access to nutritious foods varies widely. So in the US and other high income countries, you generally um, you have a lot more um, access to diverse diet, fruits and vegetables, animal source foods, etc. In low-income context, it's really um, it's really quite different. You know, you see diets dominated by a single staple. So, for example, rice in many Asian countries or corn in uh, many countries in Africa. And really, the diet doesn't provide anywhere close to enough nutrients because, in um, large part, it's they don't have access to diverse foods. It's they're unaffordable. Um, they can't they can't access them. So, I think the cause is really um, in the in the high-income countries. We really see ultra-processed foods dominating the food supply. And so those foods are also nutrient poor, right? So countries um, that have a lot of access to, you know, wealthier countries have access to ultra processed foods, that could be a, a, a contributor to the inadequacies, inadequacies we see. Yeah, it just, it seems so unfair to the, you know, the third world countries are like you're talking about the, the low income countries, um, they just don't have access. But here, we've got plenty of access. We're just making the wrong choices. We're just making bad choices. It's almost like, you know, it's it's not, you could say it's not their fault, it's our fault, which is not the right way to put it because we've been sort of hijacked, I guess you could say, by these ultra-processed foods. Um, but, but let's take a next step, though, and say, okay, so nutrient deficiencies. Well, what does that really mean for practical terms? Because it's easy to say, okay, you're low in iron or you're low in zinc. Um, but what does that mean? What are the implications for, for people? Yeah, first, I just want to say, you know, I think personal choice plays a big factor in the in the poor dietary, um, you know, poor diets in high income countries. But a lot of it is, you know, structural, there's, there's a yes. kind of, it's, there's a lot of our food environment that makes it tough, you know, and it's convenient foods are addicting. So I don't want to put all of it, I think it's sort of a balance of that, like, individual choice and the system, right, and, and the access. Right. I didn't mean to imply that to. it was personal choice. I, I, I meant to say it seems like it's that way because of the difference, but really at, you're absolutely right. It's the structure of the food environment that we've been sort of thrust into in this evolutionary um, and environmental mismatch. So yeah, I think that's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, but yeah, when, when we think about the consequences, um, what is a, what does a nutrient deficiency mean? You know, it can mean different things to different people, right. a mild deficiency in a nutrient, um, you know, may not show any actual physical symptoms. It may have some slight impact on somebody's health, but it's um, it's not going to be a, a major issue. But when you see severe deficiencies in iron and zinc, vitamin A, iodine, et cetera, you actually have consequences for, especially for young children during the um, rapid growth and development, really um, stunting their growth, um, hindering development of, um, you know, cognition and the brain development. You see reduced scores on, uh, you know, tests and in, in school right. performance, and really, there's this cycle of uh, malnutrition that perpetuates when you have undernourished, um, you know, mothers who are giving birth to children. They're already starting off, kind of, at a disadvantage, and so you really see that cycle. Um, consequences can can range from, 
you know, blindness for vitamin A deficiency, you know, goiter for iodine deficiency. Uh, so there's, there's numerous consequences, but they can have severe effects and they can even um, increase risk of infections and death. Yeah. So it seems, I mean, you don't want to have deficiency in any age group, but it seems the deficiencies are so much more impactful for the young age group, for the infants, the kids, even the teenagers during their growth phase. Because if you, if you sort of miss out on those phases of life, it's not like you can catch up later, right? Like if you have deficiencies at that time, um, and don't, and don't grow and develop properly, those can be permanent, permanent effects, can't they? Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to really ensure adequate nutrition in early life. Yeah. And so since there's a difference in sort of the etiology of the malnutrition, you know, in industrialized countries, it's the um, ultra processed foods dominating, even though we have other choices, but in the in the lower income countries, it's just they don't have the options. So there might not be just one solution, but the solution that we hear so often for a better diet, better planet, et cetera, is a more plant exclusive diet, which seems at odd at odds with combining combating, sorry, which seems at odds with combating the nutrient deficiency because one of the papers you published showed that the most nutrient-dense foods are mostly animal foods. And you went through the list, the organ meats, the, the bivalves, the crustaceans, the fish, the goat, the eggs, the beef, and then the dark leafy greens, and then other veggies, and then milk, yogurt, and cheese. So it's predominantly the, the animal um, foods that give you the most nutrients um, the most efficiently, but yet the push for less animal products, um, in our food system seems like it could potentially worsen nutrient deficiency. So is that a concern of yours as well? Yeah, it's certainly a concern. I think it's, it should not be sort of seeking to minimize animal source foods as much as possible, which is sort of the narrative you often see in, in, in the U S and, um, really to me, it's about having, you know, animal source foods, but really adding plant rich foods to the diet, not ultra processed foods, kind of replacing mm -hmm. those foods. What, what really concerns me is this sort of push to apply our health issues in the US or in other high income countries into low and middle income countries where animal source foods, we know people are consuming very small amounts infrequently, and they can benefit the most from increases in animal source foods. So I get concerned when there's this sort of push to, you know, we just need to go all plants or we need to go reduce animal source foods as much as possible. I think that really could have important harmful consequences to really not address the undernutrition that we see. And it's, this is impacting people's lives, right? So it's not just, not just us in the, in the West saying, yeah, we all just need to go, go vegan. We have access to all these foods. It's, it has bigger right. implications to, than that. And which we really see is that deficiencies are not negligible in the U.S. They're not negligible in, in the U.K. or in high-income countries. So I think we really need to pay attention to nutrient adequacy as well as this push to reduce chronic disease risk, which, you know, should include plant-rich foods, right? But it's sort of a balance. Right, right. And and what is the message that New York school children are now learning? You know, it's been in the news a lot lately that New York is now going uh, vegan Fridays for their school lunches. So one, again, you mentioned the replacement foods. Uh, chances are they're not getting quinoa and beans and Brussels sprouts and asparagus um, and soy and, you know, and lentils as their, as their vegan meal, they're going to get some tater tots and uh, some vegan pizza and some chips or something. And, you know, it's the replacement food isn't there, but what are they learning? They're learning the message that animal foods are bad. Um, right. and, 
as their kids, and we talked about the importance of nutrient deficiencies for kids, they're not necessarily learning that the ultra processed foods are bad. So I mean, you've been sort of vocal about that. What What is your reaction when you see something like that, that the mayor of New York City is instituting this um, vegan Fridays at school lunches? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's misguided. And I think the, the issue is not that the health implications of this one meal, which is, you know, taking up a very small amount of the overall diet, it's the message that's being sent. I think you had it right on the, I think you had it right on the money. Uh, we're sort of putting this message out here. Animal source foods are bad and they're unhealthy, they're unsustainable, they're unethical. I think that's a bad message to send. I think we, we really want to say, look, we, we want to have balanced diets. We should have, you know, a range of animal source foods and plant source foods. The beauty is that the combination really helps to ensure nutrient adequacy. They have complementary uh, nutrient profiles. They have different roles. We should not be demonizing animal source foods. In my opinion, we should be trying to improve diet quality. So I would be, I would be totally happy with a policy that says, you know, we're going to have Whole Foods Friday or, we, you know, we're going to cut out some of the junk food on Friday, right? And, and a lot of that would be plant-based. It could have some, you know, ultra-processed meats that are cut out too. So that, that I think, would be a positive benefit. And it would send a message that I think is the key factor, which is let's try to go towards more wholesome diets. Let's get away from the ultra-processed foods when possible. Yeah, that, that's, that worries me so much, the message that, that kids are, are hearing because when they hear it from their teachers or where they hear it from their government officials, whatever the case may be, people who are an authority to them, they're, they're going to believe it a lot of the times when they're kids and they're going to think that's the quote unquote right thing. Um, but when it's, when it's um, reductionist thinking, which you have, you've criticized before, you know, nutritional reductionism. Um, then it, it doesn't it doesn't educate people in the right way. So so tell us what you've meant. You've been critical about reductionist thinking. Tell us what you what you mean by that. Yeah, I think I think being overly reductionist is is you know often this term called nutritionism. It's saying like we can reduce uh, whatever it is. Let's say it's nutrition. We can reduce nutrition to the you know a few individual components in the food. So it's these essential vitamins. It's um, you know it's protein and whatnot. And really, I think when you when you go that route, uh, one of the interesting things is we can see nutrition. Uh, you look at two foods from a nu sort of a nutritional profile. You can compare foods on a piece of paper that look the same. They're not going to impact the body the same. So I think you know the Kevin Hall's study on ultra processed foods in in, in 2019, the randomized controlled trial. They tried to really match for some of these factors. They matched for fiber. They matched for protein. They matched for energy density. Yet those on the ultra processed diet compared to those on the unprocessed diet consumed 500 more calories per day in a free feeding scenario and they gained a bunch of weight so yeah. it's not just about the nutrients it's not just about what you can see on a nutrition facts panel it's about the level of processing you know how palatable is that food how likely are you going to overeat it how does it impact your microbiome what's the food matrix like all of those i think that all matters yeah that's a great point because you know some people have said well if we're going to keep eating these ultra-processed foods, why don't we just add protein and fiber to them to help? But with Kevin Hall's study, that doesn't look like that's going to make a bit of difference because something about the ultra-processing is what stimulates people to overeat over 500 calories per day. I mean, that was pretty dramatic in that study. Um, so it is interesting then. So it's not just about protein. It's not just about carbs. And so you've said we shouldn't be talking about protein. We should be talking about protein-containing foods. So again, tell us the, the difference between those. Yeah, so oftentimes you see this sort of, um, you see terms are laid out, you know, animal protein, plant protein. 
And they're often presented as if they're interchangeable or their value is sort of just from their protein content. You know, for starters, the, the bioavailability of protein varies, you know, essential essential amino acids, different, you know, varies between these foods. But also the, the nutrient density varies, you know, micronutrients like iron and zinc are in highly bioavailable forms in animal source foods. So when you, when you kind of reduce foods to these single nutrient, you know, an animal, it's an animal protein or it's a plant protein, I don't think you, uh, you lose a lot of the nuance and you lose a lot of the, the factors and other things like cofactors and nutrients that can influence absorption. It's not just about the nutrients. It's really about the package of nutrients. It's about the food matrix that holds those nutrients together and how your body can process those uh, nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Food is so much more than just the macronutrient that happens to predominate in it. So now would you say though, that you, you can't meet a nutritionally adequate diet without animal source foods? Would you say that's a true or false statement? I should say that's, that's a mostly true statement if you don't have access to supplements and fortification. So the big one being, being B12. Now I think if you're on a vegan diet, if you have access to all the right foods, you have a diversity of, of plant foods and you are paying attention to your nutrients, you certainly can have a nutrient adequate diet, but it takes a lot of intention, right? It takes a lot of um, access. You have to have access to these things. You have to have access to a doctor to check your iron status, for example. Um, so I think it's the, the lower what we see in our, our research is the lower the animal source foods in the diet in terms of the, the average population, the higher the um, risk of inadequacy, uh, just because they're really um, certain nutrients that are hard to get through through plants. So iron, and uh, iron, zinc, B12, uh, vitamin D. Yeah. So, so here in the U S for anybody who's middle to upper income and can shop at whole foods or shop at, you know, a good grocery store that has a supplement aisle and that has a variety of different foods, probably no problem to, to meet all your nutrition, um, your nutrition needs to get nutrition adequacy. But someone who is in one of these food deserts, which are so prevalent in the United States, um, where your food's coming from the, the local convenience store or from the fast food joint or whatever the case may be, very different story then to get nutritional adequacy. And even then to take the leap to say, okay, now let's go back to Africa and Southeast Asia where you've done so much of your work, probably 100% impossible to have a adequate nutrition, a nutritionally adequate diet without animal source foods. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that's largely true. You know, there already, there are, there's already very low consumption of animal source foods. If you have this mes- message from the West saying we need to heavily restrict animal source foods, it's it's going to be hard to try to really address the problems. This is poor child growth. It's, it's stunting. It's um, you know nutrient deficiencies that are impacting people's lives. And I think the message needs to be: we need to balance the diet. So we need animal source foods. They need to be in the context, in the right context. And we need to have you know a lot of wholesome plant foods. But I think that message is overly simplistic, and it actually has some potential harms that can um, result. Yeah. As you know, you just published a paper with uh, Frederick Leroy and others about uh, the role of animal source foods and the role they can play in a, in a healthy environment that is not all about this reductionist thinking animals are bad, bad for the environment, um, but they actually can play a, a role. So tell us more about that, what you found in that paper. Yeah, so so we were invited to write this. I should say Frederick was invited to write this paper and he invited me and others to really um, review the evidence and to present um, ultimately sort of an argument that says, look, 
we need to uh, we need to address issues around health, sustainability, and ethics. Um, and when we think about animal source foods, those those issues matter. But the solution is not to either completely eliminate animal agriculture or to drastically reduce it. It's to produce animals, you know, produce animal source foods in a way that um, is has a you know positive or minimal impact on the environment. That is, you know, humanely raised livestock. And so we we try to um, we don't try to be very prescriptive about you know we need to do exactly um, this or you should consume this exact amount or not. But we try to really push back against some of the the narratives, um, global narratives that have said, look, we should everybody should be going completely plant based. Um, you know, animal source foods are harmful to health. They're harmful to the environment and they're unethical. <laughs> that type of message is is not really balanced in my opinion. And so. What I think we're doing is we're saying, look, not everybody has to eat animal source foods. It's fine if people choose to be vegan, if they have that choice and they have access. But we also shouldn't go and say you, everybody should be should should reduce their consumption of animal source foods. And especially as we look at the, the, the malnutrition problems in other countries, I think one of the stats that it, what we found in our analysis of nutrient deficiencies, I mentioned the prevalence in the, in the U.S. and U.K., one in three women, uh, 15 to 49, have at least one deficiency in the U.S. Two, one in two have a deficiency in the U.K. But wow. this number is incredibly high in some countries. So in India and some other countries in Africa, nine out of 10 adolescent girls, uh, 15 to 19, have at least one micronutrient deficiency. And many of them have multiple micronutrient deficiencies. So this is not a small issue, and especially in sort of the developing world, and it's it's important to consider that. Yeah. So is that just not common enough knowledge? Like, if the people who produced, you know, eat Lancet, or the people who are behind um, the push for a plant predominant diet, uh, are they just not aware of the? I mean, I know you can't speak for them, but what's your guess? Like, are they just not aware of these micronutrient deficiencies? I think that um, many people probably aren't aware of them or to the severity of how um, common they are or of the impact that they're having. I think if you if you work primarily in high income country context, you probably aren't very aware of it. You know, most of my colleagues are, you know, and, and a lot of the authors on the Eat Lancet are. I work with with some of them and they I think they you know, care greatly. I think. Ultimately, a lot of this evidence is sort of the reason we have wrote this paper that's um, it's actually going through CDC clearance right now, but the global analysis on micronutrient deficiencies is because we haven't had good data on this. The, the last estimate globally was from over 30 years ago, and oh, it wow. was just based on <laughs> anemia. It didn't include any biomarkers of actual micronutrients. So that's one of the reasons we conducted this study, and I think I'm really... I think it'll be really helpful to show just for advocacy purposes, just say, look, diets are inadequate in many different contexts. And in some contexts, it's just so highly inadequate that it's having a real health burden, a significant public health burden. You know, in the Eat Lancet diet, another paper we have um, under review is looking at the adequacy. And it's and and I think it all depends on how you look at adequacy. Do you properly account for the bioavailability of iron and zinc? Right. In the assessments, I don't think that was really done um, properly in that analysis. So when, when we account for that, when you account for the amount of phytate, which is an anti-nutrient that it hinders the absorption of iron, of, of zinc, you actually have to consume more iron than you would if you have more animal source foods and less um, phytate. So what we found is sort of, you know, on that diet, you do see some ina inadequacies for zinc, 
or iron, calcium, and B12. The big one, which I think is sort of um, underappreciated, is that women 15 to 49 years, the Elanza diet provides from our analysis about 55% of the recommended intakes. So it's, it's, it's just over half of the recommended intakes. That's not going to be an adequate diet. So regardless of, of your perspective, let's say that you are really, your view is that for sustainability reasons, for ethical reasons, we need to minimize animal source foods. We have to have an alternative approach. It can't just be eat this, this diet that has, you know, is low in animal source foods and be fine. It says we have to say, we're going to have to strengthen fortification policies. We're going to have to try to improve access to supplementation. And it's not easy. You look at one of the things that I kind of find interesting is that deficiencies are common in countries with strong fortification structures and policies. So the UK and the US, people have access to fortified foods, people have access to supplements, yet you still see these deficiencies. Mm. So it's not easy. I think people say, oh, it's so easy to, to consume an adequate diet. You know, these are probably these are probably health conscious people like you and me who who pay attention to everything they eat, right? And that's not the that's not the majority of people. So I think we have to think of, at the population level what type of considerations should we um, you know think about? Yeah, I think that's such a good point because one of the counter arguments is simply that well, all we have to do is fortify more foods and eat fortified foods, and that'll take care of our deficiencies. So I guess the question is, are they simply not choosing the fortified foods, or is there something about the fortification process itself that still makes it inferior? So it may say there's X amount in this fortified foods, but because it's sort of I don't know, unnatural, you know, not just naturally occurring, but fortified, that it's actually only a percentage of that that's actually absorbed. So you know what I'm getting at? Is it just they're not choosing the fortified foods or the fortification itself is sort of inadequate? Yeah. And, you know, my organization, GAIN, um, started primarily, you know, in 2002, started primarily with the, the intent of improving fortification. So there are whole there are whole organizations devoted to this. We, we're much broader now. Um, there's 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 research topics devoted to this. It's not easy to fortify. So it's not easy from a logistics standpoint to get um, the right amount of fortified products to monitor that, to make sure that the producers, whether they're large scale or whether they're small local producers in places, you know, in, in developing countries, it's really not easy to ensure that the level of the, the product, the fortification in the product is high enough or not too high because you don't want to you don't want to, you know, have some risk of over overconsumption, right? And you can't control a lot of times. Like you can't, we can't control who is going to get the fortified foods. So you have to try to make it at the population level, and that's the challenge, right? If you, some people don't need fortified products. So if they if they consume them, they're they're getting excess. Some people need them more than others, but there's a real challenge to find the sweet spot to enforce it, you know. And then you're right, people choosing the products. That's probably more of an issue in high income countries. You know, there are fortified um, products, but you don't if you're not choosing those products or if they're not adequately fortified, then you know you're at risk for for a deficiency yeah yeah and then and then combine that with the chronic disease risk and the the problem we have in our country of just eating too many calories plain and simple so what number of calories do those nutrients come with you know how many calories do you have to eat to get adequate nutrients and i think it's pretty clear that the a big sweet spot of the maximum nutrients for low number of calories a lot of that comes from animal foods and not necessarily from fortified foods um but are there other examples or where you can get sort of the maximum nutrient for the minimum calories you mean outside of yeah outside of animal source foods i think the the key yeah. category is dark green leafy vegetables so mm -hmm. you know kale 
uh, spinach, um, those types of things. So they're they're very dense. Of course, it, it depends on the, the the population. They're not as desirable for many many people, right? <laughs> you you can't convince somebody to eat a pound of salad versus uh, a pound of steak, right? It depends on the person. For some people, that's all. You know, they're they're all they're good with salad. Other people, they're not. So sort of an uphill battle in in some ways. Um, you know, soy is pretty nutrient dense. Yeah. Think about um, tofu and, you know, soy milk has, has pretty high protein. So you think about like soy milk as a replacement um, for, for some people for, for cow milk. That's a reasonable um, option. But I think what I sort of want to emphasize is that their animal uh, source foods and plant source foods are really complementary. You go too low in either and you kind of, you, you, you uh, increase your risk of inadequacies. Yeah, I like that message a lot about how they're complementary. And the other really important, very so important point that you just made was what are people's likes and dislikes and tastes? And, you know, food is an emotional thing for us. We have our, it's a part of our culture. It's part of our upbringing and our history and part of our emotions and our enjoyment. So to, to assume that you can just dictate that everybody's going to eat less meat and be okay with that and eat plant foods that maybe they're not used to. I mean, it's one thing even here in the U S where, you know, we're a melting pot and we all have different cultures versus you know, sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or whatever the case may be, where it's totally different culture that in the foods you're going to try and do. So I think that's a part that's just completely missing in this message. And do you see that as being any part of the message now or in the future about, about the, the culturally appropriate diets, enjoyable diets and factoring that into the equation as well? Yeah, I think uh, I think most researchers in this in my field of global nutrition they do recognize that, um, but it's sort of um, it's sort of a challenge to consider every barrier to healthy diets. Mm-hmm. So there's there's desirability, right? It's what you're talking about. There's the convenience. There's the affordability, and sort of the um, one of the things like the, when you think about convenience, it's sort of how long does it take to prepare the food? Can you just open it up and eat it? Can you just pop it into the, the microwave or put, put it on stove? Or do you have to chop a bunch of things, put it together? So those are all valid because, you know, you think about um, people's time, you think about women's time in, in many countries in low and middle income countries, their time is um, important. And so there, are, there, I think we do need to address the sort of convenience. We need to have things be affordable. But I don't think the solution is just buy a bunch of all packaged ultra processed foods because they're convenient. You can get your energy needs met. We know that that's not going to be a good solution for people um, health-wise. And so I think it takes a lot of effort to consider all of these factors um, together. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you look at it in a systematic way, you can, I think, have a better approach where you're considering all of these factors instead of just targeting one of them. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's hard when the message is a reductionist message and a overly simplistic message. And that gets us into these rating systems, which, you know, somebody in a prominent position puts out a food rating system and it's, it's thought to be true, right? It must be evidence-based. And so there's this food compass where, you know, you were vocal about it on Twitter, which I thought was great. And, but some examples, you know, ground beef was in the red zone of 26, meaning don't eat basically. And cheese was at a 28, whereas lucky charms was a 60 in the yellow honey nut Cheerios full of sugar was a green 76 and orange juice, a green 78. Now, I mean, those examples to me are just mind boggling. So what, what was going through your mind when you read this food ranking system, um, 
both in terms of its adequacy and maybe where it was coming from and the impact it was going to have on society making food choices. Yeah. So I personally know uh, a few of the authors and I was uh, aware of the the project. I was aware that the paper was coming out. So when I saw it, I was excited to look at it. And I have to say that I quickly became disappointed because I think I think the effort from sort of a conceptual standpoint is kind of a nice idea, like combine all of these dietary factors, try to look at things, you know, in this, this sophisticated way. And what, for me, it was just very clear if Honey Nut Cheerios is, is in the green and you have these other, you know, these other whole foods, you know, like eggs scoring so low, it doesn't really seem to, for me, it doesn't seem to really represent the evidence that we have when you look at it holistically. You know, certain other things you didn't mention, an ice cream cone with nuts scores 34 in the yellow to be moderated, higher than like a, a whole egg fried in butter. So that yeah. to me, that's, that indicates a problem in the algorithm. And so we, we decided, let's look into this. So we, we reviewed it very thoroughly. We went through every single step in the algorithm, every single metric. And we wrote a, a what's called a matters arising paper for the journal. We just submitted it yesterday. And so it's going to take a while for that to, to come out. Um, we'll probably post a preprint print on it so that um, people can kind of get access to that. But our, we're really, we're not trying to be, um, we're not trying to be overly critical because these types of, you know, projects, these types of things are hard to do, but we, we want to raise the concern because I don't think it's going to have the, the, the positive impact that we need. I think there could be some positives, like it could increase, you know, whole plant, plant rich foods, which I think is a good thing, but I think it's not the full story. And I think it has risk of really um, kind of encourage, encouraging or, or incentivizing ultra processed foods. Many of the top scoring foods are ultra processed and right. just being ultra processed, whatever your opinion is, I don't think it means it's necessarily bad. If you think about there's some ultra processed foods, you think about protein powder, I think that's very different than uh, Lucky Charms, right? And so I think there needs to be more nuance to that. And I'm worried that, you know, this is for taxation. This is for company ratings. This is for investment decisions. This is for food labeling, warning signs. Are we going to see warning signs on whole, you know, whole foods that, you know, the whole wheat bread, um, skinless chicken breast, these things score lower than these, the sugary breakfast cereals. And so it's just, it doesn't seem consistent with the evidence to me. Yeah, yeah, that was a little crazy. And I, I reached out to Dr. Mazafarian. Unfortunately, he he declined an invitation to come on the show. So uh, I'm very curious, like when you looked at the algorithm, were you able to see like what you would estimate as their errors or what they made in the algorithm, like what they overly devalued and overly valued? Yeah, so it's a number of things. Um, for one, I don't think they, they, they properly... Um, valued nutrients, um, nutrient density, and sort of the nutrients that are greater, or of greater public health concern. So if a food has some vitamin C versus some iron, it's it's going to get the same type of contribution when iron is a much bigger risk. You know, uh, I think a big factor is that the, the level of processing was a very minor factor in the score. It's less than 5%, so it's, it's not really contributing much. And actually, there's actually an error in the, the way that they... Um, classify ultra processed foods. So it doesn't seem like it was done correctly for all of the foods. Mm. And also some of the foods that score, um, some of the foods that are ultra processed score a hundred, at least that they're labeled ultra processed. And you think, well, then the algorithm even it says, you know, if this is a around 5% of the score, it should score less than a hundred, but it's not. So I think there's some inconsistencies there. Mm. I want to, I want to, um, 
I want to see the response from the authors. I hope I hope that I hope that our our letter is published. Um, you never know, but um, I hope it's published, and I hope that they they respond. And maybe some of this is um, some misunderstandings, but from looking at it, there are there are several points where I think the the approach is um, needs some adjustments if it's going to be uh, really based in the evidence. Yeah, and, and did, what about just the bias against animal foods? That it, there, if you come in with an inherent bias against animal foods, you're gonna you're gonna tailor your algorithm to fit that bias. And and, and look, we, we shouldn't just pick on this one, right? There's the there's the Nutra score in Europe where I saw an example that Nesquik, you know, the the chocolate powder that you go you, you make chocolate milk with with 16 grams of sugar was ranked higher than ham, uh, which had you know, five yeah. grams of fat in it. So it's not that it's just this one score. It, it seems like it's sort of pervasive. And um, it seems like it, I don't know, from my standpoint, there's this underlying uh, bias against animal foods that that's put in throughout all this. Do you think that plays a big role? Yeah, I think there is a bias. And, you know, for people who work in, in, in the U.S. or other high-income countries like Australia or the U.K., where some of these systems have been um, developed or applied, it's probably... Um, you know, the bias against animal source foods is probably has less harmful impact because people are already consuming decent amounts and they're probably not going to necessarily reduce it just because of this label or something where I, you know, I, I think that is the bias is there where I see the, the big concern is when, when people like to apply these systems yeah. globally. And that's actually, you know, you can see that that's an, an intent for food compass and, and others where they're really hinting at, um, taking this for global application. And what I'd be concerned with is you don't want to be penalizing these nutrient-dense animal source foods, especially in low and middle-income countries where malnutrition is high, undernutrition is high. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's the scariest part. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, look at this, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not going to pay attention to it. Forget about it. But it's another thing to say, well, who is going to pay attention to it? Who's going to use this? And what are the downstream implications? And, and that's the really scary part. So that's why it's so great to have someone like you coming from uh, an evidence-based standpoint about nutrient deficiencies, about the difference between animal and plant source foods, about ultra-processed foods, and giving a different perspective. Um, it just needs to be a louder voice. So what are ways that we can get this message out there even more? Like, What do you recommend people can do? Yeah, I think um, I think we're start. I think we, um, you know, my colleagues and I have written this this letter, and there's there's a couple others. I think we've also kind of written about. I I don't know. I don't know how to um, how to make it amplified. I, I think that it's probably important to to share with people um, in who are policymakers to share with other researchers and then the, the general public. I get a little concerned about the the polarization it generates in the the on the social media channels. So you know, I, I can post something and then people can take it out of context and say, you know, this is <laughs> like the researchers have no idea what they're doing and this is they're all corrupt. And I feel like that's not true. I think it's right. it's a bit more nuanced than that. So as much as we um, as much as we can get the message out there that look, let's not attack the people. Let's not. Um, let's not dehumanize anybody and, and let's focus on the issues and the evidence in a constructive way. That's, you know, that's how I would want people to criticize my work. I, I want to be criticized. I want to be held accountable for things, but I want it to be done in a constructive way. So let's try to do that for everybody um, and say, look, we appreciate what you, you know, what you have to offer. Um, we appreciate this effort. These are concerns and let's work towards addressing them. 
as a community. Yeah, that that is a wonderful comment right there. And, and so so true about social media and about the reaction that, that people can get. And, and that's why I highly recommend people follow you on Twitter because you are one of those voices that really wants to get to the root of the problem and not worry about the personalities, not worrying about the, the extreme reactions, but let's boil it down to what is the problem and how can we address it and how can we be more clear about the message, which I think is, is so important and, and undervalued. Um, so Thank you. I, I do hear though that that things are changing from from gain and that you're you're moving on. And so what are future projects that you want to get more involved in to try and help help this space along and help this message? Yeah, that's um that's true. I'm gonna be heading over your way to California. I'll be in uh be in Los Angeles probably starting June. So I'm gonna be um I'm gonna be a, a research affiliate at UC uh, Santa Barbara. And probably starting to do some new projects and potentially stay on with some existing ones. So I currently work on a project um, called the Food Systems Dashboard that looks to take all types of food systems data, anything from the health indicators, what people eat, the environmental issues, and combine it all into one place. Uh, We have a lot of plans to expand that work to make it more detailed in terms of how granular we're getting with the data, looking at subgroups, looking you know, subnationally within countries about how that varies and trying to help say, how can we use this data to inform policy and really make changes that can improve people's lives and preserve the environment? Um, you know, other projects I'm looking into, actually one, uh, I'm really proud of um, of GAIN and their sort of strategy to to be nuanced in these perspectives. They've never discouraged me from sort of putting out research that is, can be controversial. If, you know, if, if I'm putting out something that's advocating for a moderate amount of animal source foods from both the health and environmental perspective, that can be, you know, criticized from some people, but gain, you know, gain has, um, we actually have a program in development where we are seeking to sustainably improve, uh, sustainably increase uh, consumption of animal source foods. And so, that's sort of a bold, bold move right there. Like we're, we're going into a country where, where intake is very low in a context where it's, um, you know, it's not consumed much. We want to increase it for nutrition reasons, but we want to make sure there's, um, it's done sustainably. And I think there are real concerns about um, issues with all foods, of course, but certainly animal source foods. What people don't really realize is it's not just about the change in uh, intake from a very low intake to a moderate intake, it's the population growth. Actually, a large part of the increase in, in foods and in uh, animal source food consumption in Africa is going to be just from population growth. Right. So it's going to be an issue regardless of what people's perspective is in terms of how much people should be consuming or whatnot. It's going to be an issue. So I think what we're trying to do is, is head that on. So I hope to be involved in projects like that going forward. And uh, you know, for me, just trying to look holistically at diets how can we make diets that are healthy for people and the planet and how can we do it in a way that's equitable that doesn't take away people's freedoms and choice and really respects all of the stakeholders involved so hopefully i can continue that type of 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 work going forward yeah such an important message i mean so if anybody is working on projects where they need someone like you they better come and scoop you up before someone else does (laughs) because because your message is look you're not a plant guy you're not an animal guy you're a you're a diet adequacy guy. You're a guy to make sure it's the same in the U S as it is in, in, in lower income countries. You want, 
um, a quality of diets, a quality of nutrients, and so that we all have access to it. And, and I think that's so important. Rather than being in one specific camp, you're in you're in the camp for for nutrients, which is which is a, a breath of fresh air and what we need. So so thank you for all the work you have been doing and have done, and will continue to do. And, and thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brett. Really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed the discussion. So let's stay in touch and keep keep talking going forward. For sure.